Take a copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. We're three weeks into a four-part series on stewardship. And we're just walking through this paragraph or two uh, from the Sermon on the Mount beginning in verse 19 and concluding down at the end of the chapter, verse 34. And Jesus is speaking to his people in this sermon about life in the kingdom. Those who are citizens of the kingdom of heaven will live in this way. And so it's a little bit of a sort of ethics of God's kingdom. And it truly is upside down in many ways from the world systems that we know so well and can very easily and naturally adopt and embrace, Jesus calls his followers as citizens of a different kingdom that's not of this world to live in a very different way. And that is especially true and perhaps most glaringly obvious to us when it comes to the topic of money and material possessions. How Christians relate to money and stuff is a hugely important aspect of what it means to live as followers of Jesus Christ, as citizens of a heavenly kingdom that supersedes our citizenship in any earthly nation state. And so we approach this whole topic with the the lens of someone who is trying to live as a faithful citizen of God's kingdom, a faithful citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And so the notion of stewardship, as we've presented it in this uh, series, is basically the notion that everything you have belongs to God. God owns it all, and as Randy Alcorn says, I'm his money manager. So he has entrusted to us a finite amount of resources in money and possessions and time and talents and health and relationships, and he is calling us to live and steward those resources in such a way that his kingdom is seen and promoted and advanced. We are seeking to live as kingdom-first givers. The goal in in many ways is to learn how might we avoid the danger of taking the resources God has entrusted to us and going AWOL with them, like my friend Sean in the third grade who borrowed my video game and then moved with it. How do we avoid moving away with the resources that God has given us? Well, Jesus has told us a few different things so far in this passage about stewardship. In verses 19 to 21, he told us that stewardship is about where we store up treasures. Where we store up treasures. And a good steward invests in treasures that will last. If you hoard for yourselves piles of stuff in this earth, in this life, it won't last. Moth and rust destroy, thieves will forcibly remove it from you, it just won't stick around. And so it makes sense as a good steward that we invest in treasures that will last. That is treasures that will carry on over into eternity. He told us in verses 22 and 23 that stewardship is about which kingdom we prioritize. Are we going to prioritize the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of this earth or the kingdom of self? Whatever those small kingdoms are that we sort of establish and try to make paradise on earth for us. A good steward 
lives intentionally with eternity in view. We talked last week about the dot and the line. A good steward recognizes that the dot, this earthly life, is going to end. And it's relatively short and small compared to the line of eternal life in the kingdom of God forever. And so a good steward will intentionally live in the light of eternity. That's about our perspective. The world that we see as most important, most real, and where we want to invest our resources. Today, Jesus is going to give us a third rule or principle about stewardship. And as we look at verse 24, what we'll find is that stewardship is about what authority we serve. What authority we serve. And we'll learn that a good steward gives allegiance only to Jesus Christ. We're going to read for context, we're going to begin in verse 19, and I'll read all the way down through 24, and 24 will be the verse that we focus on this morning, but beginning in verse six, uh, excuse me, verse 19, here are the words of Jesus. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, And where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. May God bless his word to us this morning. Who is your master? is the question in view in verse 24. And as we talk about stewardship, as we talk about managing the resources that God has entrusted to us for his purposes, for his glory, for his kingdom, we must ask the question, to whom will we yield our allegiance? Whom will we serve? That's what Jesus is after in this verse. And we have to choose. He sets up a very clear dichotomy for us here. We will have to choose one or the other. Just as we cannot have our treasures both on earth and in heaven, or our bodies both in light and in darkness, so we cannot serve two masters. That is a universal rule that Jesus lays out for us. No one, he says, can serve two masters. Not just the really talented ones, the people who are really great at managing their time and compartmentalizing their lives. No one can serve two masters. It's physically impossible to serve two masters. The inference there is that if you're storing up treasures on earth, guess what? Your master's not God. 
if you're living for the dot instead of the line and seeing this kingdom and this life as the most important, the most ultimate thing, guess what? Your master's not God. Jesus speaks here of God as a master, which implies that our relationship to him is that of a slave. The Greek word is doulos, which simply means slave. And that is a consistent metaphor throughout the New Testament for how we as Christians relate to God. He is our master. We are his slaves. You'll see even in some of the letters of Paul and Peter, they'll introduce themselves as a doulos of Jesus Christ. That means a slave of Jesus Christ. Sometimes our English translations try to soften it and call it like a bond servant or something like that, or a servant of Jesus. And those things aren't necessarily bad or untrue, but they don't quite get the force of, I think, what the apostles actually intend for us to hear. They consider themselves as slaves to the master, Jesus Christ. And that is how we ought to regard our own lives as well. One commentator says this about the notion of of being slaves uh, and what that means in this context. By definition, a slave owner has total control of the slave. For a slave, there is no such thing as partial or part-time obligation to his master. He owes full-time service to a full-time master. He is owned and totally controlled by and obligated to his master. He has nothing left for anyone else. To give to anyone else would make his master less than master. It is not simply difficult but impossible to serve two masters and fully or faithfully be the obedient slave of each. One will call... And if we're not prepared to answer in response and in obedience and in submission to that master, then we are not living as that master's slave. And that's how the Bible calls Christians to relate to God. And Jesus himself borrows that metaphor and says that we ought to live as slaves of God. That's an interesting notion, probably sits a little funny with us. We probably import a lot of our own understanding of chattel slavery in America and the obvious wickedness of that institution onto this uh, idea. There were all kinds of social situations where uh, a, a slavery arrangement may have been, even for a period of time, the best possible social good that that person might have experienced. And so when that is the arrangement, there is the necessity on the part of the slave to be fully devoted to his master. And Jesus is using that analogy as the way we relate to God. And indeed, the Christian life is one of glad servitude to Jesus Christ. In fact, I would argue that discipleship is all about authority. The very journey of being a disciple of Jesus is about yielding our lives more and more to his authority in our lives. If you were to look at Matthew 28, verses 19 and 20, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus couches that commission in terms of his authority. He says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, in light of that authority that I have, go and make disciples of all nations. And then after he says that we've baptized them, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. He says that we are to teach them to observe all that I have, what? Commanded. Who makes commands? A master, a king, a ruler. So discipleship and the very great commission about making disciples is all couched in terms of Jesus' authority as king, ruler, master. 
And our relationship to him is observing what he's commanded. That is gradually, increasingly, more and more as we live our lives, yielding ourselves and our will and our property to the master, to the Lord Jesus. The commandments of Jesus and our obedience to them relative to his authority as the king and master in our lives is the sum total of discipleship. That's what being a disciple of Jesus is all about. Now, we speak rightly about being set free. The Bible also uses that language a lot to say that in Christ we've been set free. We preached a whole series through the book of Galatians that's all about being called to freedom in Christ. So it's right to say that we've been set free. If you look at the words of Jesus in John chapter 8, verses 34 through 36... which I'm trying to find and having a difficult time flipping pages. There we go. John chapter 8, verse 34, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. So we are set free in Christ, but what we're set free from is our slavery to sin. We're not set free from sin to then go and do however we choose or live whatever, in whatever way we want. We are set free from slavery to sin in order to obey our new master, Jesus Christ. We are set free from sin's slavery to then become the bondservants of the Lord Jesus. He is our master, our boss, our king, our ruler. And so, to state it plainly, if we aren't increasingly yielding our lives, which includes our possessions, to the authority of Jesus Christ, then we are enslaved to a different master. That's the dichotomy that Jesus sets up for us in Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. He'll love one and hate the other. Or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. And despising there doesn't mean that you, that you hate it. It means that you disregard it. So you'll be devoted to one master and disregard the authority of the other one. You can't do both. You can't face two directions at the same time. And you can't serve two masters. And of course the masters that Jesus names here are God and money. You have to choose one or the other. You are either going to store up treasures on earth, or you're going to store up treasures in heaven. You're either going to live for that dot, the time-bound physical life that we see and know here, or you're going to live for eternity, the line. You're either going to serve God as a slave of Jesus Christ, or you're going to be enslaved to money. That is how Jesus lays it out for us. He lays down here an all-or-nothing line in the sand. Who will come? Who will follow? If you're going to serve me, you're going to serve me completely, says Jesus. You must belong to me all the way or you don't belong to me at all. That is the call of discipleship, the call of the kingdom. 
And so that's how we relate not just to our possessions, but to all of our lives and all of what we experience in this world. We either belong to Christ and serve him, or we belong to some other master. And money is a pretty good, in our limited view, substitute. If we're not going to serve God, it makes sense to us as fallen people to serve money. Because money can buy you anything that you want, right? Said with tongue firmly in cheek. So there's a truth underlying much of what Jesus says about money and some of the other New Testament passages that, that, that address money that I think it's worth thinking about. Here, here's the truth. Here's the idea. Money is dangerous. Now, money's not evil. Money's not bad. In fact, it's a resource that God has given. He has entrusted money and possessions to us, so it can't be bad. God doesn't give bad gifts. So money is not evil. It's, it, it, as in itself, it's amoral. It's neutral. It's just a tool, right? It's something that's there as a resource, as a tool, and it can be used for good or it can be used for evil. Just like with any tool, in the hands of someone with an evil heart, it can be twisted and used for evil purposes. And our sinful hearts have an enormous amount of potential for taking what God has given us for our good and distorting it for selfish, even perverse ends. We do this all the time with good things that God entrusts to us. We twist them, we misuse them. Instead of building his kingdom, we set up our own kingdoms. Instead of trusting in the paradise that's to come, we try to build our own paradise right here. This is why, the, the danger of money is why Paul has such strong words of warning regarding riches in 1 Timothy 6. Go ahead and flip over there with me if you have your Bible at the ready. 1 Timothy chapter 6. Paul is writing to his young protege in the ministry He's left in charge of uh, churches in Ephesus to lead and teach and instruct and, and build these churches. And in chapter 6 of his first letter to Timothy, he begins to exhort Timothy, this young pastor, in how he might lead and instruct and exhort his congregation when it comes to money and how they ought to relate to money. Look at verses 9 and 10. Actually, I'm going to start in verse 8 of 1 Timothy chapter 6. He says, If we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. Just the desire to be rich puts you in danger of that. Those who desire to be rich put themselves in the pathway of temptation, into a snare. That's a trap. Into many senseless and harmful desires. The human heart, again, is so creative when it comes to sin and wickedness and devising new ways that we can spurn our master and live for ourselves or for money. 
So the desire to get rich, the desire to have more, causes us to fall into this temptation and these desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he says this famous but often misquoted statement in verse 10. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The love of money has caused many, says Paul, who seem to be faithful, diligent Christians to abandon the faith and make shipwreck of their lives. The desire for money does that. The desire to get rich places you in those kinds of temptations and causes you to make those compromises. Well, this looks a little bit better. Nobody will notice. It's not that much. Whatever it is, we begin to drift away from service to Christ and we start to build our own kingdoms by our own rules and we eventually make shipwreck of our faith. Now, when he says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, you've probably heard people quote this. The Bible says money is the root of all evil. Well, that's not quite what it says, is it? First of all, it doesn't say the root of all evil. It says the root of all kinds of evil. That has to do, again, with the creativity of the fallen human heart. We can devise all kinds of ways to sin with our money. Money can be the root of all manner of wickedness and perversity and harm against other human beings. There are billion-dollar industries that are founded and premised upon the trafficking and slavery and harm of other human beings. We know this is the case, right? So it's the root of all kinds of evil, but it's not just money that's the root of evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. Money's not bad. God doesn't give bad gifts. It's the heart that latches on to those riches as the most important thing, as the, the, the pursuit of life, it's that heart that devises all manner of wickedness, that dishonors God, that harms others, and indeed makes shipwreck of ourselves and our own life and faith. It is through this craving for riches that many have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. They've just caused themselves pain by their foolish pursuit of money. So here's the principle underlying that. Riches are fraught with danger. Money's not bad, but there's danger inherent in its possession and accumulation and the desire that can begin to form. There's, There's dangers wrapped up in wealth. The danger of trusting in money instead of trusting in God. I'm going to be okay because I have X number of dollars in the bank. Are you trusting God or are you trusting money? The danger of loving ourselves more than loving God. I have this money. What am I going to do with it? I could invest it in God's kingdom, in helping people to come to see and to savor and to know Jesus Christ, or to help relieve somebody's suffering, or I could use it to really pad my den right to really get all these cool things that i've had my eye on for so long and make my life a whole lot better or more enjoyable so we end up loving ourselves more than others and more than god the danger of investing in our little kingdoms more than investing in god's kingdom i'm reminded of the story of the rich young man that that we hear in mark chapter 10 
the rich young ruler, some translations say, this rich guy comes up to Jesus and says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, you know, keep the commandments. And, uh, and he says, oh, I've done all that from my youth, right? I'm doing pretty good. I, you know, I've, I've kept the commands. I think I'm a good guy, you know, on the up and up. Looks like, looks like I'm going to make it in. And Jesus says, okay, well, one, one thing you lack, go sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. Why would he say that? Is it because to follow Jesus, you have to sell everything you have and you can't own things? No, it's because Jesus knows this guy's heart. Jesus knows he's trusting in his own righteousness, and he's really in love with his stuff. And so that's what Jesus is trying to expose. He's trying to get to the heart. So he says, sell all that you have, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And the man, we're told, went away sad, for he had great possessions. He wasn't willing to part with his stuff. He loved it too much. And then in response to that, Jesus says something that totally blows the minds of his disciples. He says, how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. It is easier, he says, for a camel to make it through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are flabbergasted by that, probably because they assume if the guy's wealthy, it's probably because God has blessed him, right? They have lots of, this guy has lots of stuff, it's because God must be pleased with him. And you're saying, he can't make it into heaven? What chance do we have? Is probably something like what the disciples are thinking there. And this is what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about the love of money, the desire for more stuff. Just like this rich young man in Mark chapter 10 whose heart was too wrapped up in all of his possessions to think about what he would gain by following Christ and entering his kingdom. That doesn't sound good to me anymore. I'd rather stay with my stuff. Jesus says when our hearts are wrapped up in our things and our possessions and our own little kingdom building, we cannot even see straight to value the kingdom of God which is what is truly and ultimately to be valued. So money is not evil. Being rich is not evil. But it's dangerous. There's dangers inherent in the possession of wealth. I think it takes an extra measure of faith and God's grace to stay pure-hearted and kingdom-oriented in the presence of great wealth. And so Timothy, excuse me, Paul goes on in 1 Timothy 6, to tell Timothy, here's how you're to exhort the rich. Look at, down at verse 17 in 1 Timothy 6. He says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. That is, to think highly of themselves and look down on everybody else. Nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to Enjoy. Why, why shouldn't they trust in riches? Well, he tells us they're uncertain. How are they uncertain? Well, Jesus told us in Matthew 6, 19, that moth and rust will destroy your riches, and sometimes thieves will take away your riches. You don't know that you will have tomorrow what you have today, no matter how much it is. Don't set your hope on the uncertainty of riches, but trust in God. And then he says in verse 18, they are, they being the rich, they are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. How is a rich person supposed to relate to his riches? By giving it away. 
That's how you cultivate trust in God when you have money, is by giving your money away. If you hoard money, you cultivate trust in money. If you give money away, you cultivate trust in God. I'm not relying on my riches to get me by. I'm trusting that God will take care of me. Spend your resources on the kingdom, is what Paul urges the rich. If you were to look the other way, or flip, flip that coin on the other side, what, what would the exhortations be to those who are perhaps less wealthy? Those who don't have quite as much. Those who may be poor. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious about the future. We get a whole sermon on that next week. Don't be covetous. That is longing for what someone else has. Don't get greedy. Don't devise ways to get more that allow you to cut corners and break rules and bend laws and harm others just to try to get by. Be content with what you have. Godliness with contentment is great gain. You can't serve God and money. Back to Matthew 6. You'll either hate one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve them both. You can't stand and face two directions at the same time. You're either going to serve God, or you're going to serve stuff, and you're going to desire wealth, and your heart is going to be led away bit by bit, day by day, decision by decision, away from Christ and his kingdom. Okay, so what does enslavement to money look like? I don't think, I, I don't think I'm enslaved to money. Pastor Kyle, you're talking a pretty hard game here. I don't, I don't feel like I'm a slave to money. I think I'm trusting God. Here, here, are, here are some thoughts. Here are some observations about what it might look like to be enslaved to money. The first one's pretty obvious. Greed. Just greed. An uncontrollable desire for more stuff. An obsession with the latest and the best of whatever it is. Got to have the new toy, the bigger thing, more than the next guy, whatever it is. Just greed. If your heart craves stuff, you might be enslaved to money. You might be serving money instead of serving God. It's not worth it. It's not going to last. The kingdom of God is better and it's eternal and therefore worthy of your investment. Don't desire more stuff. Desire the honor and glory of God and how you might use your life to further his ends and build his kingdom. So greed. Here's a second thing that enslavement to money might look like. Frivolity. Frivolity. Just sort of not serious stuff. Maybe an inordinate amount of time and money spent on entertainment. Lesser pursuits. Things that indicate I don't really take myself and my life all that seriously. Just frivolous with what I have. And you can see as well as I can that entertainment is an ever-expanding empire of idolatry. If you browse Netflix for a few minutes, you will be stunned at the sheer amount of stuff that is there and always growing. Who has the time and money and resources to even produce this much stuff, let alone to watch it all? And that's just one streaming platform. 
Now every company has their own streaming platform with all of their movies and TV shows. That says nothing about music or art or anything else. It's not bad to be entertained. I'm not saying that watching TV or enjoying a movie is wicked. Of course it's not. But there's a, there's a priority, there's a balance here. If your life is spent on frivolity, on entertainment and stuff that just doesn't have eternal consequence, you might be enslaved to money. You might not be following God. Here's another one. Insecurity. Enslavement to money might not look like I've got this evil, sneering kind of desire to get all the stuff that I can get and look at all the corners I'm going to cut and all the ways I'm going to get rich. It might just look like you are always insecure, constantly worried about financial catastrophe, feverishly tucking money away into savings accounts and investments because you're afraid the bottom is going to fall out. Trust God. Don't trust in yourself, don't trust in your wisdom, your thrift, your resourcefulness. Don't trust in the uncertainty of riches, says Paul. Rest in God's commitment to care for you. That's what Jesus talks about in verses 25 to 34 that we'll look at next week. But maybe enslavement to money just looks like insecurity. Just nervous about what I'm going to have. One more. Maybe enslavement to money looks like competition. Maybe you're always examining what somebody else has, and you're always trying to keep up. Got to make it look like I'm, you know, right there. I know the same things they know. I see the same things they see. I have the same things they have. If you find yourself striving to compete with other people in the church or outside the church, you might be enslaved to money and not serving God. Here's an exhortation for you, if that, if that describes you. Keep your eye on your own domain. Keep entrusting yourself and your possessions to God. Remembering that godliness with contentment is great gain. Pursue that. Pursue contentment and trust in God's allotment of resources. There will always be somebody richer than you and probably somebody poorer than you. And that's not always just because you didn't work hard enough or you're not quite smart enough. God allots resources in his providence as he chooses. Live where you are. Focus on your domain. What is the lot that God has given me? And pursue contentment and faithfulness with what you have. You cannot serve God and money. John Calvin said, where riches hold the dominion of the heart, God has lost his authority. So when my heart's treasure is found in the material possessions I can accumulate and hold on to, I am functionally denying the authority of Jesus Christ over my life. Money and possessions are the most important thing to me. What I'm saying is I don't really live for Christ. I don't really want to obey him. His commands feel too hard. His commands ask me sometimes to separate from the things that I love, like that rich young man I marked in. And we go away sad because we love our stuff too much. Friends, Jesus Christ laid down his life on a sinner's cross and took it up again so that he could take his rightful place as king 
Over the universe, yes, but more pointedly and specifically, over you, over your life. Jesus is your king. He is your authority. He is your master. If you name Jesus as Savior and you trust in him, you belong, body and soul, to Christ. And that's your only hope in life and death, as the old catechism says. So take stock of yourself. Examine your heart. Evaluate your patterns of spending, thinking, speaking, giving. If you find evidence there of enslavement to money, repent. Trust in Christ for forgiveness. He promises us in his word to forgive us from all our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness when we bring our sins to him in humble confession. The grace of God and the gospel pours out to those who repent and trust in Christ. It's not too late. And here's the real miracle of the gospel. Jesus will actually give you a new heart with new desires. If you'll bring your heart to him with its twisted and warped desires in repentance and faith, You'll be amazed as you watch him transform your heart over time into one that longs for him and his kingdom and his glory and names Jesus alone as your master. And remember, he's not a harsh master. He's the only master indeed whose yoke is easy and whose burden is light. Let's pray.